is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. When rejected petitions become a courtroom battle, that's what we're looking at at the moment in terms of the future of Victoria's peak farm lobby group. The Victorian Farmers Federation has dissatisfied members. Those members have twice presented petitions to the organisation to hold an extraordinary general meeting and basically have new votes for the president and vice president position. Twice those petitions have been rejected by the VFF's board. So after the last rejection, now it enters the courtroom. That case is currently before a judge it's sitting at the moment. We have someone watching on and that. I'll give you as many details as we can later on in the program. Stay tuned for that. Also today, we're about to go to Rochester a year on since those devastating floods began. And when you cast your mind back, so many communities around regional Victoria have been affected, whether it be the downstream of Eildon through Seymour and up the Goulburn Valley, uh, be through the Campaspe Valley, Rochester and, and communities there all the way through to Echuca, along the Murray, Bridgewater, other areas of the state as well. So many areas affected about this time last year from huge rainfall events and large overland floods. We'll remember just some of that and talk to farmers about their recovery today on the program. But right now, let's start with rural news. Go around the country and find out what's making news there, including how much money you're making. Georgie Carroll has rural news for us today. Good afternoon, Georgie. Good afternoon, Was. Dry conditions, declining commodity rates and increasing interest rates are all pointing to a big drop in broadacre farm incomes this financial year. A new report from the government commodity forecaster ABARES predicts that after a record couple of years, average farm cash income nationally will nearly halve year-on-year to $197,000 per farm in 2023-2024. Dr Jared Greenville is the executive director of ABARES and says that it's a combination of events at play. As we're shifting into some drier conditions across much of the country actually, but particularly in some areas in WA, New South Wales and Queensland. But at the same time, we're seeing prices fall across the board, across a number of our commodities. We're expecting farm cash incomes to also follow suit and um, we're expecting a 41% drop in farm cash incomes for broadacre producers this year compared to some really high numbers that we've seen over the last couple of years. The ABARES report also says livestock farms will be affected by large cuts to income, with sheep farm incomes in particular forecast to be well below average. New South Wales crop harvest looks like volumes would be down about 40% this year due to dry conditions. It's not just volumes, but finishing a crop has been difficult with unprecedented heat and wind in September, causing significant damage to wheat crops especially. Rowan Brill, an agronomist and farmer near Galmain near Wagga Wagga, says he's had some decent rain, but it won't be enough to rescue the New South Wales crop overall. Like if we get a big year, the tons come from your, you know, your Barellans, your Condoblans and your um, Ningans and your Canambles and Walgots and that sort of thing in that area is like I would have thought that if you took all that area it's probably 80 percent down I would have thought so you know the big tons come off the big hectares to the west but that that area is massively down compared to average for certainly compared to last year anyway. Salyard prices have fallen significantly this year and so have live export prices. 
A 350-kilogram feeder steer out of Darwinport is now getting about $1,000 less than what it was nearly 18 months ago. Demand from Indonesia is slow, and a lot of exporters are now targeting the port of Townsville, where the cattle are even cheaper. Gary Riggs from Lakeville Station in the Northern Territory said he went to the trouble of putting together a consignment of blemish-free cattle only to be offered $2.60 a kilo, which for him wasn't enough. So he put them back in the paddock. I just spoke back to my agent and said, right, we, uh, we're going to bush these cattle as of today and we'll, we'll go again next year when... Hopefully, when everything settles down. But yeah, we just turned them back, back into the paddock. And uh, yeah, they're going to be heavy fellas next year. You know, they average 356 kg when we weighed them all uh, just the other day. So they're going to be pretty damn heavy by the time next year comes around. But yeah, but you know, we're prepared to take that. I'm, I'm not prepared to take $2.60. Lupins from Western Australia could soon be shipped to northern Germany for processing into plant-based proteins. West Australian regenerative food company Wide Open Agriculture has inked a new deal to buy the assets of ProLupin, a former European producer and distributor of lupin-based dairy alternatives. Matthew Skinner, Wide Open Ag's CFO, says that the manufacturing capacity of the German plant is what his company needs to make and distribute its lupin-based products. ProLupin was Europe's leading lupin protein producer. They set up over 25 years ago. They were spun out of a a technical facility in, in Germany and they pioneered some really interesting work in lupin protein. Uh, they were very focused on the vegan dairy market and unfortunately earlier this year they went into administration and we were able to buy their assets at a, a fraction of the cost that, uh, that they would take for us to build them new. The outgoing president of the National Farmers Federation says that more work needs to be done in agriculture to foster female leadership in the industry. Women make up about half of Australia's agricultural industry, but they're underrepresented on boards and in decision-making roles. Ahead of International Day of Rural Women this Sunday, Fiona Simpson says practical work leads to big change for women in agriculture. What we need to do is focus on the gaps, whether it's it's gender pay gaps, whether it's flexible work options, whether it's working from home options, uh, whatever it is, those are the sorts of issues that our partners in our diversity and ag leadership program are actually committing to fix. And that's it for Rural News. Thank you very much for that. Georgie Carroll there with Rural News. Uh, on the text line, Kevin's already sent one through saying nine millimetres of rain at Myrtleford yesterday. Windy today, looking like showers, but none so far. Have a nice weekend, says Kevin. A nice weekend to you all as well. Uh, we're going to talk floods just a moment here on the country. A flood recovery as well. If you're on a bit of land or if you farm a bit of land that was flooded, if you'd like to tell us what your last... 12 months have been like, what recovery has been like, you can always give us a call, 1300 977 or send us a text 0467 842 722. Just a quick update. We'd love to know where you're at at the moment. Also, if you're a member of the Victorian Farmers Federation, your organisation is in the courtroom today. Another challenge about its future. Do you care? Send me a text, 0467 842 I'll give you an update on that in a moment. We'll start with floods next, though. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. 
Can you believe it's a year on since uh, the floods that hit so many towns in northern Victoria and one of the hardest hit regions has been the focus of ABC Radio uh, this morning throughout the day through the Rural Report breakfast and morning programs and we'll go there to the streets of Rochester again today as the recovery continues. It takes so long to recover from an event like that. Eden Hennenen has been on the streets of Rochester today and can join you to take us there again. G'day Eden. Good morning, Was. What has it been like being on the streets of Rochester today when they looked so different 12 months ago? Yeah, look, I'm standing at the front of the Shamrock Hotel at the moment in Rochester. The sun is shining. Uh, It's a little bit fresh, but very dry on the ground here. It's complete contrast to what it looked like this time last year. I saw photos of water inundating this area uh, and speaking to Toby Acox this morning, a farmer in the region, he was saying that uh, boats were coming through this region. Have a listen to what he had to say. This time last year there was there was boats going around this corner and up the street and they were trying to minimise the fire trucks and the likes getting around because they were washing, creating a wash and making a mess of businesses and stuff and yeah it's a bit surreal to sit here now and look out at the the day starts and it's actually dry and probably what we think of Rotti as being normal. Yeah, it's it's it takes a bit of reflection, I suppose, from last year. That's Toby Acock speaking to Eden Hennenen about uh, 12 months on from the floods in Rochester. Eden is still there for us today. What have farmers been saying about the what they went through, Eden, 12 months ago and also the recovery? Yeah, look, uh, I spoke to a number of farmers this morning. It's quite interesting was obviously at the time of the floods last year, I spoke to dairy farmers and crop mixed cropping farmers who say they had to move all their animals up. Um, they lost, a lot of them, all of their crops. It's taken exactly a year for them to be able to grow, even just feed again. Um, but in saying that, they, they said, you know, at the time it was devastating and it's still taking a bit to recover but most farmers are in comparison to residents in the community have kind of gotten back on their feet or they just said they've had to quite quickly yeah they they said that even though I was at the Elmore field days last week um, and it was quite wet there but a lot of the farmers gathered apparently at that field days on the Thursday when the rain happened and celebrated because um, they said it'd been quite a dry past few months so Quite a contrast. Last, last this time last year was flooding in that region, and uh, now that they were looking for some much-needed rain that came into the community at the perfect time. That's interesting, isn't it? There's the the farming side of things where there's an opportunity to plant another crop or prepare to grow something again, and harvest is nearly upon them now. But there's also the residents of Rochester that still haven't returned to their homes. Yeah, and speaking to these farmers this morning, they came into town as soon as the floods happened and um, said they were helping out with a lot of the residents here who are still displaced. You know, we heard from a lot of school students this morning. Many still aren't even going to school in Rochester. They're living elsewhere up in Echuca or in other parts of the state. Um, Many are separated from their families. I heard a story that one of the farmers was telling me that people are still living in their caravans. There's a family here that have two children. The woman is pregnant, about to have her third child, and they're living in one small caravan together, still waiting for their home to be fixed and for them to move back in. Um, Just where I am in the Shamrock Hotel at the moment, out the front on the main street in Rochester, apparently just a few streets back from here, if you take a drive through the streets there, people are driving through and can see through the windows of houses straight into the backyards. There's just streets, rows of of homes that have still been left um, not fixed at the moment. So, yeah, huge contrast between, you know, farmers that are kind of celebrating at the moment 
doing quite well, being able to cut their first bales of hay uh, this week, actually, um, compared to what's going on for a lot of residents here. I had a chat with Andrew Rushton, who said, you know, this one year on mark has been kind of a switching point for a lot of farmers. Have a listen to what he had to say. It's uh, been a long recovery for us. Last year, we didn't cut uh, a bale of uh, either cereal hay or loosened hay, which made it really difficult going forward. And uh, we haven't really recovered from that until we cut a bale this year, which uh, we're starting to do now. Uh, so our reset from, from the floods don't really start until uh, until now, really. So it's been um, basically a year on for you. Yes. Yeah, so we lost that crop um, completely. Uh, right at the end, it was it was ready to cut when the flood came through. So uh, we didn't get anything off that, uh, which meant we brought in every everything to feed the cows, which we rarely do. So that took a, a massive hit on okay. our bottom line. Right. And can you just set the scene? What was it like this time last year, say the day before the floods happened? Two days before it happened, we went to the Elmore Field days and, uh, and we were looking at machinery that we could possibly buy the way that... The season was shaping up, was excellent, best we've had, um, best milk price we'd had. And then, yeah, to get home and started raining. And, um, yeah, the day after that, yeah, we, we had had flood water passing over the farm. So that was tough to, to look at, yeah. How much of your farm was covered? Uh, you'd say 98% of it. So 390 acres of, uh, of 400 acres was underwater. We had water up a foot around the house through all our sheds uh dairy was still dry but yeah heist we'd seen by oh eight or nine hundred mil anyway yeah eight or nine hundred mil and what about your neighbors in the community how's everyone feeling now a year on um the farming community our resets now sort of thing uh we've all been fighting through to get to to next this year's crop so we're all feeling a lot more positive now um, seeing hay, hay come off the paddocks and, and filling the sheds back up. And interesting, the timing you said of the Elmore Field Days, I remember, you know, the past few months had been actually quite dry in your region, but I went along to the Field Days this year and there was quite a lot of rain and puddles on the ground, but it was quite welcome for you guys, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It was just in time, to be honest. Um, yeah, it brought back some memories, but, uh, but yeah, the good that it was doing out in the paddocks, yeah. We welcomed it for sure. Brought back those memories of uh, of waking up and, and seeing water around the house and, and calves in water and, yeah, those sort of memories. Is, it's hard to, to get through and you sort of forget about it there when it's dry, but, yeah. But you think moving stuff. moving forward, the community's starting, you know, it's probably taken a year to really start getting back on its feet. Yeah, and, and look, summer, well, there's a lot of people still in town uh, living in caravans and sheds that aren't back in their houses. So I guess um, in that respect, they're still feeling the, the effects of the flood and, and don't see much relief at this stage. But, um, yeah, on the farm, I mean, business doesn't stop. I mean, we we had to uh, we had to work while the, the floods were here and, yeah, you continue to work now. And that was Andrew Rushton, a farmer uh, nearby in Rochester, who was saying was that he's been able to cut hay for the first time in exactly a year since floods last year. So it's taken a full year for a lot of farmers to really get back onto their feet and they're, they're being quite optimistic at the moment. So either for farmers or for the community of Rochester, there is a parliamentary inquiry obviously still looking into the effects of the floods as well. 
I know the Premier was there today. Are there still outstanding questions about the management of the floods or something that happened that remain? Yeah, definitely. A little earlier, I was chatting to Jed Myers and Tom Acox about this, um, and I went along to the inquiry, the flood inquiry, about a month ago here in Rochester, where many said that emergency services could have done a lot more to help out and, and to let... Uh, residents and farmers know what was happening. I know Jed Myers said to me this morning that he was told that the flood when it was happening wasn't as bad as 2011. So in his mind, he prepared for what the flood levels might have been like for him in 2011. He said it was way worse than than what happened uh, you know, a decade before. Have a listen to what he said. The word I kept getting was it wasn't as bad as 2011. So mentally I went, oh, well, I know where the water got to. I know where it, what it levels it got to and so I sort of relaxed a frack thinking well I, we've got to 11 I know what I'll get to but it was way worse mm. and I water. suppose mm. you just needed the service the community, the SES whatever may be going look they've reached peaks and everyone knowing and but it's you know it's easy to say now in hindsight but at the time it was just like bloody hell yeah, I think a lot of people would um change their time and not do sandbags they just go and lift furniture right you know. and also uh today we heard on the mornings program uh the premier jacinta allen was asked about lake epilogue a lot of people in the community asking why the level storages are so high particularly when there was quite a bit of rain last week i think it's filled to the brim at the moment she was questioned as to why water isn't being released from there a technical assessment is being undertaken at the moment to consider this issue. It will feed into the broader Rochester flood management plan that's being developed in partnership with the agency. Sure, so we need can to the let water that minister release more water now. Well, Fiona, that, that, that needs to, that, that advice needs to be received for the water minister. Whilst yes, the decision can rest with her, the advice does need to be taken because, of course, um, we are seeing uh, the predictions, and indeed, uh, we've seen it in. in particularly the last few months, notwithstanding the rain you referred to that we had uh, in the last week or so that has provided that important uh, spring break for, for uh, primary producers in the region. We are seeing with the predictions of El Nino, the forward forecasts are... are uh, and it, and it, is a, a little, it is a little concerning that the forward forecasts are that we are going into a hotter, drier period. As uh, El Nino has been declared by the Bureau of Meteorology, we know from um, very recent lived experience that comes with hotter, drier summers. Uh, that brings a different risk, obviously, around bushfire risk uh, as we head into this summer and the ones that follow. So this is where the management of our water storages does become uh, a consideration of all of those factors because uh, that water is uh, that is in Lake Epilogue is needed, obviously, for our primary producers. But as I said, the towns and communities like uh, around the around the district also need that water supply that comes to support their activities. That's the Premier speaking to uh, Fiona Parker this morning on Mornings on ABC Radio Victoria. Eden Hennenen's with you on the streets of Rochester today as we look on a year from huge flooding that hit that town and obviously flooding not only hitting there, hit areas of Seymour, Shepparton, Northern Victoria, around Bridgewater, a whole lot of many other places as well and went on for months. Eden, how do residents and farmers of Rochester feel about the anniversary, feel about a year on from, from the floods and, and marking it at all? Mixed emotions, I would say, was, um, it, you know, speaking to, to farmers a little earlier when I asked them to, and it's not, not a nice thing to do, but to revisit 
what it was like. Um, I know Toby Acox was getting quite teary talking to me about um, him being away from home when this all happened, watching on the news as, as the floods inundated this area. And uh, Jed Myers was speaking to me this morning saying that you know, he had to watch 450 cows walk through walk through rainwater, flood water, and not not knowing what was going to happen. Um, a lot of the community members are still quite uh, shaken. You would say many are still misplaced from their homes. So it's been a year on, but it's going to take a long time, I think, for members to to recover and people just to get back into their homes and kind of lead a semi-normal life again. Well, it sounds mighty busy this lunchtime down the main street of Rochester today. There's certainly trucks return there. Eden Hennon, and thank you so much for taking us there today. It's been great, great to mark the occasion and hear from those who were affected quite harshly. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Woz. Eden Hennon and there on the streets of Rochester. Uh, obviously flooding much more widely experienced across areas of northern Victoria. And if you'd like to tell us how you're recovering, you can certainly send us a text 0467 842 722. We're heading towards news and weather. After that, we'll get an update for you on this VFF court case, the Victorian Farmers Federation in court against these dissatisfied members today. That hearing is just wrapped. We're getting all the details together. We'll tell you what happened in court today shortly. Uh, before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit of horticulture now, though, on the country. Our Australian cherry growers are in the middle of establishing a new fruit traceability project that will allow everyone from exporters to consumers to know exactly where the fruit was grown. Cherry Growers Association is working with Agriculture Victoria and they're in the second year of a program which hopes to increase exports. Uh, Stephen Riseborough is the director of the Cherry Hill Orchards, a business with sites across Victoria and southern New South Wales. His business is trialling this new technology, which basically lets you know where your fruit was grown. Yeah, we're very fortunate to be involved with this project. Uh, It's a big project. It's uh, technology IT-based. And it's all about capturing data from harvest on the orchard and and tracking that data as we uh, pick and then transport and then pack and then distribute our cherries locally and all around the world. From our end, it's collecting data from which farm, which block, which variety, and that's essential for food safety or, you know, if there's a need to check um, back what what actual uh, fruit was which, but also from the trade and logistics as well as our customers point of view if if there's a need we can uh, look in and and find out all that information as well Uh, but also we've we've got a downstream part of the project which we're just due to launch very soon in the next week or two Uh, we'll begin proper detailed testing and that'll be for consumers so it'll enable uh, consumers to scan our cherries and actually find out what region it was grown in and uh, even you know small little snippets of detail of who the growers were on each farm, so that's uh, terrific. Wow! So that'll go like on the packaging that you buy in the supermarket, and yeah, you you grow, you have a lot of growers right across the state and in New, southern New South Wales as well, so people can find out exactly where the cherries they're eating came from. Yeah, they're all our own orchards, um, but the QR code will uh, will show um, on the pack. Uh, it, it'll come up with a mini site, which is essentially it just verifies that it's Cherry Hill branded. Um, it's authentic because, you know, food, food fraud in different parts of uh, the world for export it is a bit of a thing. Um, we've actually seen it uh, where our own brand's been, yeah, it's been uh, reproduced and we've seen that pop up. Bit of a funny thing to see that, but, uh, you know, that's, that's a big problem around 
parts of the world. Food fraud, yeah. So can you explain a bit more about that and, and what that is? Yeah, look, in produce, I don't know a huge detail of exactly how big the problem is, but, you know, it affects things like, you know, seafood and meat, different things where essentially a product is mislabeled either accidentally or, or fraudulently and, uh, you know, it gives the impression that it might be top quality Australian meat or produce when in fact it actually comes from a different point of origin, uh, which is unfortunate for us as, as growers, but also consumers, it's really important that they know exactly what they eat, that it's trustworthy and safe. So with the, the cherry traceability, I mean, I, I guess, how do you collect that data and how much work is involved on your end to put it in? We've got a to- totally computerised system um, and it catalogues all of our information of what varieties, what trees are on all, each orchard in each block. That's, that's all uh, in our system, but we're relying on manually scanning uh, the fruit as it's harvested. Now we've got an automated system and we've got RFID. As we print bin labels when they uh, go onto each uh, wooden bin of, of cherries as it's picked, uh, these RFID labels have all the information imprinted both visually on the card as well as the RFID transmitter or, or it's a little uh, electronic device that when it goes through the, uh, the read as it pings off a little uh, radio transmission to say exactly what that bin is. So it's automated our process and when the bins get transported we know exactly where they are and similarly when they get graded on our automated machine that process is automated and hopefully uh, fail safe so that that gives us a lot of assurance that the system's robust and going to work. What will this do for your export markets? So for export it's really good uh, because it gives assurance to our customers that they know uh, that it's our product when it arrives. Does it increase your export? Uh, we're hoping so. Um, I think Brand Australia, if you want to think of it like that, has an excellent reputation globally, particularly in Asia. So our Asian customers, they, they really uh, love the fact that it's grown in such a pristine environment here and it's safe. Uh, that's a huge, big thing in those countries. And uh, so we're hoping that it just builds on the strength of Brand Australia and our own brand of cherries that, that they know that it's a trustworthy high-quality brand. Uh, you know, we're in October at the moment. It's a couple of months away from Christmas. You must get this question a lot at the moment. How are the cherries looking for this year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've had pretty well the perfect winter and spring. So soil moisture is fantastic, particularly after this last rain. It's looking sensational. Uh, we've had a perfect pollination situation with our blossom. Uh, so the bees have been able to do their thing where, you know, go back 12 months ago, it was a pretty hard slog in, in spring. We had a lot of wet weather, so the turnaround this year has been yeah, as nice nice a spring as I've ever seen. When can we start to see cherries in the supermarket? Most supermarkets should be in supply yeah, towards the end of this month, uh, certainly <coughs> early November, well and truly. That's Stephen Riseborough from Cherry Hill Orchards speaking there with Annie Brown. I love the idea of almost knowing what tree your fruit was grown on. Well, maybe not that close, at least the row it was grown in. That's pretty fun really we'll tell you more about what's going on the vff shortly on the country we're also going to the state yard dog championships if you don't know what that is you want to know it's a pretty cool event i was checking out the uh the dog work at the seymour show on the weekend i reckon i would have been sitting there for an hour it's just awesome to watch stuff like that and the best of the best going at it this weekend and we'll tell you where shortly on the program right now though let's find out what's making regional news headlines uh, branson gibson's in the studio for us to do that today good afternoon branson 
Good afternoon, Warwick. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has spoken to ABC Gippsland about the fires and floods the region experienced last week. He said he was in consultation with member for Gippsland Darren Chester throughout the emergency. The Prime Minister told listeners in Locksport the state and federal government learnt lessons from the fires and will work together to prepare for the fire period. A man's body has been found in Victoria's northwest two days after he died in a suspected dirt bike crash. Police say they believe the 29-year-old Sea Lake man was riding along the side of a railway track in Berrewillock near Swan Hill on Tuesday evening when he hit a drainage culvert. His body was found yesterday afternoon. A report will be prepared for the coroner. A man has been charged following a house fire in Wendery yesterday afternoon. Emergency services were called to reports of a large amount of smoke from a house on Park Street after 4pm Thursday. The owner of the property, a 28-year-old Sunshine West man, was present at the time of the fire but was not injured. The house sustained significant damage. Officers arrested a 34-year-old man at the scene shortly afterwards. He has since been charged with criminal damage by fire and will face Ballarat Magistrates Court. The exact cause of the fire is being investigated as suspicious and an arson chemist will attend the property. Rochester residents will come together tomorrow to mark 12 months since record flooding. A local fundraising music festival called Rochella will include 40 live music music acts as well as family-friendly activities. 1,000 tickets have been sold so far with proceeds going towards local flood recovery. A Telstra transmission issue is affecting mobile and some landline services in the Gippsland towns of Benang and Tubbot. Telstra had a technician on site yesterday but were unable to resolve the issue. Technicians are back on site today trying to fix the issue. And that's the latest news headlines. For more, head to abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Branson. Branson Gibson there with regional news headlines. Warwick along with you for the Country Hour. And Christy Johnson is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology to tell you what's happening weather-wise around our state, uh, not only today, but into the weekend and beyond. G'day, Christy. Hey, Warwick. How are you? I'm, I'm good. It's very cloudy outside my Shepparton window today. Is that what many people are saying? Yeah, it's pretty much cloudy across the state today. In the, the wake of that cold front that went across yesterday, uh, we've got uh, a fairly moist southwesterly or west to southwesterly flow over us, bringing some cloud in off, off the waters uh, south of the bite there. Um, we are seeing a, a bit of shower activity too, although it's mostly sticking south of the ranges, which is what was expected. Uh, so a bit cloudy in the north, but not much of the wet stuff. Temperatures today, obviously cooler behind that front. Uh, we're looking at potentially getting up into the, the 20s up in the Mallee, 25 Mildura, 21 for Swan Hill. But most of the rest of the state sitting around about the mid-teens, between about 16 and 18 or 19 degrees, maybe a little bit cooler down in the southwest where the winds are coming right off the water, uh, just uh, 14 for Hamilton, 13 at Ballarat, 16 at Warrnambool. So, um, yeah, a coolish day, uh, some showers, maybe the odd dusting of snow up in the peaks. And really pretty much uh, expecting the same story for a few days. We stick in this uh, west-southwesterly flow that's just going to bring showers to the south of the state, um, really cloudy conditions, uh, a couple of weak fronts sliding over um, Tasmania, not really affecting us, but maybe just bumping up the winds at times and maybe uh, pushing a little bit more shower activity on. So tomorrow, again, as I say, some showers in the south, temperatures 
mostly into the high teens, but uh, getting into the low 20s in some parts of the north. Uh, Sunday, pretty similar, showery once again, a little bit cooler as the front comes through, um, but really temperatures mostly still in those uh, mid to high teens, a little bit uh, cooler, just 13 for Ballarat. Uh, Monday, another front uh, comes through, well, actually late Sunday and through Monday morning, so um, cooler again, but most temperatures in the low to mid-teens and uh, just maybe reaching around the 20-degree mark or so up in the northwest. Some potential for some small hail on Monday too with that colder air uh, and the snow level dropping down even as low as about 900 metres, so quite cold on Monday, but the good news is it gets better from there. So on Tuesday, the high-pressure system finally reaches us and moves across, so showers should be easing. There might be one or two left in East Gippsland during the morning, but not much, um, and temperatures slowly starting to recover. So by Wednesday, the big high-pressure systems in the Tasman Sea winds go northerly and start to bring us some of that warm air from inland Australia, uh, so temperatures jumping up into the 20s right across the state, possibly as high as 29 in Mildura for Wednesday. And on Thursday, staying quite warm as well, uh, possibly even getting into the low 30s up in the Mallee. So, um, yeah, warmer conditions and, and dry, settled weather. It looks like Friday's looking fairly settled too, although there is the chance of maybe just the odd spots uh, of uh, Shagtree in the south with a weak trough. But really, it's pretty cool and uh, showery through the south for the next, well, till the start of next week, and then midweek we get a bit warmer and drier uh, with the winds going northerly. And how much rain on that on the weekend are we expecting into, well, really into Monday? Yeah, look, not high rainfall totals. So uh, most days we're probably looking at maybe, you know, up to three or four millimetres in the south. Um, there may be some spots like the uh, southwest or Bass Coast and then sort of through the Streslakis up in the Yarra Ranges, Bauble Plateau, those sort of areas that tend to see a little bit more um, in a southwesterly flow, they could be getting sort of 5 to 15 millimetres, particularly uh, today and again on Sunday, maybe Monday as well, um, but really not high rainfall totals. And then basically once we get to Tuesday, uh, pretty much dry conditions. So, yeah, a little bit around, um, pretty much nothing in the north, maybe, you know, less than a millimetre each day, um, so yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's good to good to get that that info. Uh, also, warning wise, um, there's, there's a fair bit going on, isn't there? Not only for today, but into the weekend. What are we looking at there? So, in terms of our warnings, um, the flood warnings are easing off. So, we've been able to uh, finalise the Goulburn River finally with the um, releases from Eildon dropping down a bit. So. Uh, that's, uh, that one's been finalised. We still have the minor flood warning for the Latrobe River, Rosedale just sitting uh, just above minor there and with a bit of the rain that fell uh, yesterday, just keeping that going for a little bit longer. And there's also uh, a minor flood warning for the Murray River at Barham um, and that's the rainfall that fell last week making its way downstream. Um, we've also got with these fronts sort of sliding over Taz, there's going to be some windy conditions so we do have strong or gale force wind, uh, gale wind warnings um, through most of the coastal waters today and tomorrow and probably continuing into Sunday and Monday as well. And um, there is also a sheep graziers warning out as well with sort of the cool, cool southwesterly winds. Um, so, yeah, a bit going on in the warning space, but, but not too bad. The, uh, 
there, there could be some pretty windy conditions through some parts of the southern coast tomorrow, like the, the Wilson's Prom, Cape Otway maybe, um, perhaps the peaks of the Otway, some of those sort of places could be quite windy tomorrow, but we're not expecting to quite reach warning thresholds in terms of a severe weather warning, but uh, that's the only other thing that, that might pop up in terms of warnings over the weekend. Brilliant, Christy. Much appreciated. Thanks very much for the update. Thanks, Warwick. Christy Johnson there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the forecast on the text line. This one says very wet here in West Gippsland, 25 millimetres so far. Uh, the season's very good. Pity about the stock prices too, right? Thank you very much for sending that through as well. Well, let's get out and about to an interesting idea in Victoria. Can eating a pest, well, can a pest be a premium food product first? And does eating the problem help pest control? Something Clint Jasper's been looking at. I don't need to tell you about the problem that deer are becoming in Victoria at the moment, huge breeding, huge populations across many parts of Victoria. But as the problem expands, many are coming up with innovative solutions and Clint Jasper has been out looking at one of those. Deer are one of Australia's worst emerging feral animal threats. For much of the 150 years since they were introduced here for recreational hunting, they were a pretty rare curiosity in the landscape. But now their numbers are ramping up, as well as the damage they do to the environment, agricultural land and vehicles. In Victoria, the Invasive Species Council estimates over one million deer now cover 40% of the state. About 150 kilometres southwest of Melbourne, deer have found a haven in one of Victoria's biodiversity hotspots. In the Otways, among the cool, temperate forests, old-growth trees and steep terrains, deer are thriving. There's one crossing the road, two crossing the road, three crossing the road. This is Anthony Rowe, and one thing you've got to know about him is that first and foremost, he is a passionate hunter. I called it, I always have called it ecotherapy. I'd go bush and um, reset after a, a busy week or a busy couple of nights or whatever was going on. Anthony moved to the region as a paramedic, so he was pretty delighted to find so many deer on his doorstep. But the more time he spent in the bush, the more he noticed not only how quickly deer numbers were rising, but also how much damage they were doing too. At times you'll see the um, cuttings in the, where, the yeah. game trails where the deer go, um, which is a good sort of show. At times the erosion that happens through there in winter when the water just buckets down through it, it's huge. My recreational hunting has seen deer numbers over the last 10 years at least significantly increased to the point that that's where conversations between myself and other hunters led to me sort of going well let's do something about it so I went down that rabbit hole over the space of um, about eight months or so and then COVID uh, arrived and um, I decided to give the business a full full full-time crack so I I, um, took some time off ambulance took 12 months off leave without pay to make sure the business would support us um, and it has done that so I've since resigned ambulance. So we've sort of gone from yeah enjoying the bush as a, a form of keeping myself sane to um, yeah I spend that much time out there I'm enjoying it uh, immensely it's, it's really good. 
Armed with his game harvesting licence and his rifle, Anthony Rowe harvests four to 500 deer from the Otways each year, and the venison gets sold by some of Victoria's best restaurants. Here in the Otways, deer have found an abundant supply of food and live with next to no predators. They're successful breeders. They have one offspring a year, but as mothers, they're, they're very protective, they're very successful, and the fawns are born pretty much ready to, to be up and about within under 12 hours. So they're mobile, and the only thing that may even worry them are foxes, and you know they're not big enough to take down a fawn. So it really is a perfect little environment for them to thrive. Using thermal cameras and his own talent for hunting, Anthony works in the dead of the night. These animals uh, live their best life. They, they roam wherever they want. Through the Otways, they eat whatever is in front of them that, that is tasty. And um, 99% of the time, they're still eating that food when, when my bullet meets their head. That, that's, you know, that's as ethical, I find, as, as you can treat an animal before you then um, process it for, for food. And if, you, if this was like a cow, a beef, this would be like the porterhouse cut. So you can tell the size difference between the porterhouse steak and, and this. <laughs> One of those customers is Tobin Kent, the owner and head chef at Moona, a restaurant south of Geelong and about 150 kilometres from where the deer were shot. The flavour is incredible and the tenderness. So uh, as Anthony must have told you, they eat the most luscious plants growing seasonally through the Otways. Put a little bit of the samphire that we got on there. It's just the conscious kind of thing. We, 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 we do want to do the best for the broader environment, so maintaining the natural habitats as best as we can around the area um, and keeping control of these overpopulated animals is just a good thing to do for the general community and the environment. Eating feral animals, invasivorism, if you will, is no silver bullet to the massive environmental and economic threat posed by their growing numbers. The Invasive Species Council recently estimated deer alone cost $91 million a year, and the vast majority of that damage bill is borne by farmers, while the cost of government management and research is another significant chunk. The council's Peter Jacobs says hunting will always play a part in how deer are managed, but recreational hunting alone will not solve the problem. So commercial harvesting is something that uh, a lot of landowners uh, get a lot of benefit from. If people can make use of the resource as part of taking the animal out, as part of culling the animal, that's, that's good, but it won't solve the problem in the long term. But if it helps raise awareness of the impact of deer and people can use the product, absolutely, but it's only one tool. And I guess we're not going to eat our way through the deer problem in Victoria. With deer established in so much of Victoria, including sensitive environmental sites like the Alpine Peats, the current management approach is something called asset protection. It's called a biosecurity approach. It's about trying to be strategic and, and put the resources where they really need to be focused on. So that's a good plan. The problem is that it's taken 150 years to get to the point where we now need a plan to control these feral animals. It, it should have been done a long time ago. Um, and the investment, while it's being welcomed um, by government, it's clearly not enough. It, it's, it's really just working around the edges of what's really needed to be... Con this has become a major issue now that needs major investment. Peter Jacobs says a good first step for the Victorian government would be to remove the protected status deer have under the state's wildlife. Life Act. And this is a hangover from 
decades ago when deer were considered to be a game species and, and elusive and in the, in the, in the bush for the, the um, enjoyment of hunters. That, that period's clearly passed. We've got million deer now, 40% of the state. It's time that they were considered to be a, uh, a pest. This is what they are and stop being protected. So under the Wildlife Act, which is currently being reviewed, there's an opportunity to remove that protected status uh, so that they can eventually be considered a pest, just like rabbits and just like foxes. An independent review of the Wildlife Act was handed to the Victorian government in 2021, but the report and the government's response has yet to be made public. Clint Jasper with that report, and if you'd like to see more of that story, you can watch ABC's Landline television program this weekend and you'll be able to see a lot of visuals to what you heard in that story there. You're listening to The Country Hour. Warwick, along with you. Let's go to the courtroom now. The battle to control the Victorian Farmers Federation has moved from petitions to the courtroom today as dissatisfied VFF members continue their push to oust President Emma Germano and other members of the VFF's leadership team. Emma Field has been watching on the proceedings today and can join you now. Emma, welcome back to the Country Hour. What can you tell us? G'day, was well. We were. I was uh, in the in the Melbourne uh, Federal Court this morning. Uh, you might remember back in June, a group of grain grower members, VFF members, started the process to ask the VFF to hold an extraordinary general meeting to put forward a resolution to dissolve the VFF board and spill all elected positions, including the president and vice president positions. This request was twice rejected by the VFF. Something supported by VFF President Emma Germano and her vice president Daniel. Uh, Daniel Kuchinotta. So now moving forward, Andrew Wiedemann, along with the other members who supported his push, had applied to the Federal Court in Melbourne to get an injunction and a binding decision from the Justice about whether or not this request was valid. And they were asking Justice Beach to order the VFF to hold the meeting. So the plaintiff in this case was Andrew Andrew Wiedemann and the others that were supporting him that signed on to that um, resolution. Um, And and as I said, overseen by Justice Beach, who he actually, um, there was a really robust discussion about the VFF constitution in in the court, which was very interesting. But look, the hearing has just wrapped up and it was done so without the injunction that the disgruntled members wanted or were seeking. And this um, case has been adjourned to next Friday. Friday, and the Justice uh, Justice Beach has asked both sides to provide more information. So the petitions to the VFF were trying to get an extraordinary general meeting uh, to be held and a spill of the leadership positions, uh, for want of a better term. They were rejected because Emma Germano told our program at the time, that the VFF president told our program at the time, that doesn't go in line with the VFF's constitution. So now this has entered the courtroom for the court to decide whether a spill is possible under the constitution. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And there was a lot of discussion about um, the VFF constitution and how these resol- where these resolutions sit. And look, the biggest development so far today, um, if anyone's familiar with this, any VFF members listening out there, there were four resolutions that they wanted to put up at this EGM, should it be held, or extraordinary gen- general meeting. And so what's happened this morning is... Um, Parts of those that original resolution appear to be in, in trouble, and that's because they 
there's no way to resolve it under the way the Constitution's written at the moment. So these resolutions relate to appointing Paul Weller and Georgina Gubbins as the interim president and vice president if the current president and vice president are removed. Now, the court hasn't really formally ruled on this, but both sides generally agreed that under the current Constitution, they wouldn't be able to put that particular um, motion at an AGM. And the main reasons for that is that the Constitution is just not clear on the removal of... Sorry, while the Constitution is clear on the removal of some board directors, such as VFF commodity members who have a right to sit on the board and be elected, it's more or less silent on the removal of president and vice president um, because when those roles are elected, they become an ex-officio board director. So Justice Beach said in court, uh, resolution, he's talking about resolution three and four, so that's Paul Weller and Georgina Govan's been moved in. He said this can't be done as the constitution says the remaining board members would fill any uh, president or vice president vacancy. And remember there there's not many board me- members remaining because the other um, member directors resigned back in, oh my goodness, you tell me September, I think, Warwick. <laughs> uh, it's a bit hard to remember. So that was that's a major key point that I think, and now they're having the argument about whether or not they can put, they can make a decision on the two, um, sorry, two parts of that re- resolution, which is about holding the AGM or not. And, of and course, just the, quickly, Emma, I'm, I'm yep. conscious of time because we've got to go to the sure. dog, dog championships. Um, the... VFF's argument. What is the VFF's argument for for not holding an AGM? Yeah, sure. Um, they they say, and I'll, I'll quote this: that um, the removal of the VFF requires there to be power as a president. Uh, sorry, there requires to, they required to have some sort of power to remove the president or vice president, and that does not exist under the under the um, current constitution. And so there was discussion about this, and Justice Beach said, "Well, that sounds pretty." Um, Democratic, no one can remove them. So how would you do that? And they said the only way to do it is through the election process, which is prescribed in the constitution. So the regular every two year elections. Correct. Yep, that's pretty much what they said. And it's because the constitution is just not clear on president and vice president roles, which are ex officio directed versus the other directors which are elected and appointed. And what date will we know more? When do we hear more? Yes, we're going to hear next Friday, the 20th of October. They'll be back in court at 11 o'clock for anyone that wants to tune in. Emma Field, we're grateful for your time and your analysis. Thank you very much for that. That's Emma Field looking on at the VFF court proceedings. Let's get away from the courtroom and talk yard dogs right now. The championships are on. Fiona Broom is there. Can take us there right now. Fiona, where do we find you? Yeah, g'day was. I am here at the Bensdale race course where the state yard dog championship trials are on today. It is a windy old day, so we've had to step up into the pavilion. I'm here with Andrew Whelan, who's the president of the East Gippsland Farm Dog Group, and his wife, Ellie, who is the secretary of the group. Hey, guys. How are you going? Hi, how are you going? So tell me, Andrew, what's happening out here today? Um, today we have the maiden class underway, um, so we have about 50 competitors that have come from all over the state to compete in the maiden um, class, which is which is going quite well. Uh, as you mentioned, we've had to battle the battle the conditions and get through, but it uh, isn't too bad, thankfully, for the marquees that we have around. Now, what are, what is the the trial today in aid of? So, what we're doing today, it is uh, every year we have a state title. So everyone throughout the year compete in competitions, uh, which ranks their dogs from maiden to open. 
and relative to your class you then compete in that class to see if you are the best in Victoria in that class. So today we have all of the maiden dogs uh, which is uh, the lowest class at the moment um, competing to, to win ultimately the top state maiden dog and then progress to the next class uh, as you go. And what kind of tests, what kind of paces are you putting the dogs through out there? So what, the, what we're really doing is we're trying to simulate work and trying to simulate the farm environment so that you are drenching your stock or you are splitting your stock off, dividing it, or you're putting it in a truck or trailer and taking it to market. And ultimately you start with 100 points and as the competition or as your, your run progresses, you've got 8 minutes, 12 sheep, 100 points every time ultimately a sheep breaks or, or your dog doesn't do what you needed to do or you, you lose flow, points are deducted from you <coughs> to get an ultimate score out of 100. Um, the top four dogs progress through to the final. Um, those guys have the second run, or guys and girls, and then ultimately the, um, the winner is awarded out of the maiden class. And what are judges looking for? Are we looking for style or is it really about substance? Um... Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, competing today, I'm still trying to work that out. Um, Every judge is different. <laughs> uh, no, generally it doesn't matter what the dog looks like, how it does it, but it's ultimately what the stock does and how smoothly they progress around the course um, with, yeah, without any biting, without any um, negative impact on the stock. So uh, ultimately they're just looking for great workmanship from the handler and good workmanship from the dog. Um, which ultimately just fluently progress throughout the course without hold-ups, breaking sheep, which basically means one sheep runs away from the other mob or multiple sheep runs away from the other ones, and you can keep them in a tight, consistent group and progress through the course. I have to say I did see a bit of biting happening down there earlier. Um, now, Andrew and Ellie, you're both involved with the local farm dog group. Where does that passion come from? Why are you interested in the farm dogs? Oh, well, for me, I've grown up on the farm, so my family had cattle and sheep, so we've always used dogs. Um, you, when you have your own business, it's easier to work it yourself than sort of hire someone. So if you have a dog, that's worth employing a person. So very cheap labour, really, just a bag of dog food every now and then. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you build that relationship with them, and the majority of these dogs are Kelpies, although you do get the odd collie. Uh, and the Kelpies, you know, they're great work dogs, but they're great companions as well. And you'll see that, you know, they wag their tails. They love what they do um, and people love them as well. And they honestly wouldn't work and be as successful as they are if they didn't have that relationship. And, you know, like we love our dogs just as much as we love our sons. So we've oh, got to put him first, obviously. Um, but, you know, we, they are part of our life. You know, they're great with the animals and, yeah, they make everyone's lives a lot easier, particularly a lot of these people who work on big farms. They might have you know, 15,000 acres to work and, you know, you've got to rely on your dogs to get the work done. Do you think that they know when they're crowned champs? Do you think that they, they go home with a sense of achievement? <laughs> the handlers or the dogs? <laughs> yeah. No, they definitely know when they've done a good job. Yeah, they, you, they've got an extra skip in their step, big wag and smile on their face. Um, and John O'Brown strut. Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they, they do know when they've done well because they hear it in your tone too as a handler you know if you're obviously a little bit more upbeat you're speaking a lot more positive because dogs really rely on that tone thank you guys and best of luck to all the dogs across the weekend they're all out there vying to be named top dog back to you was we love our dogs as much as we love our sons has to be one of the greatest quotes thanks so much for that fiona that's it for the country hour today